We are all very human and fallible, and yet we live in a society that rewards pretending we're not fallible, or the range of acceptable fallibility is narrow. We are constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides and feeling inadequate and guilty, even ashamed. Trying to blend in means parts of ourselves must disappear, and we must then live in fear that we will be found out. Here, together, we will create a space where we can laugh, cry, and carry our suffering and hurts lightly. In the service of being deeply human. This is Life's Dirty Little Secrets. Hello and welcome to Life's Dirty Little Secrets. I'm Chris McCurry. I'm Emma Waddington. And today we have the privilege of being with Jill Stoddard, a psychologist, speaker, author, and podcaster. She's the author of several books, Be Mighty, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and coming in September, Imposter No More. And we are here today to talk about the imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon, as it's sometimes called. And welcome, Jill. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Emma. I'm so happy to be here with you both. So this whole imposter thing has gotten a lot of attention lately. Can you tell us about you know what it is and how we got here? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, by definition, this imposter experience is a feeling of phoniness or inadequacy, but that exists and tends to persist even when there's a lot of objective evidence to the contrary. So in other words, when people experience this, they're typically bright, very successful, but they don't believe themselves to be even though they've accomplished a lot. How does this manifest itself? Well, you know, it's interesting. It, it I don't think it manifests in a uniform way. It can manifest in different ways. So, you know, maybe the the more obvious way that people might think it manifests is in people avoiding certain things. So maybe I don't apply for a job because I don't actually feel like I'm good enough or I deserve it. Maybe I avoid speaking up in meetings because I don't want to be found out as a fraud. But the other way it manifests is in the exact opposite of that. And and that may be more common. I, I don't have data to support that, but I think in my own experience and anecdotally, you know, my own observations is I see a lot of overachieving and it's overachieving in an effort to outrun the imposterism. So for example, like if I just get one more award, if I just publish one more book, if I just get one more degree, then I'll finally feel legitimate and secure. And, and of course that doesn't ever actually seem to happen. It happens for some people, but it is the exception rather than the rule. And and you describe in in your new book, several different types of avoidance, one being the doer, as you just described, staying busy to avoid sort of like out trying to outrun those feelings that are like right at right at your heels. But you also mentioned some other kinds of avoidance. Yeah. So this is really I, I feel like I should state this was not something that was, you know, a big scientific study to identify these five subtypes of avoidance, but I'm a psychologist with an anxiety specialty. So my entire grad school was in an anxiety clinic and the clinic that I currently run is an anxiety clinic. So this is really what I do exclusively. And, you know, you start to see a lot of the same patterns that even though people are very, very different, like fingerprints, you see a lot of behavioral patterns that tend to be pretty similar. 
And of course, with anxiety, we see lots of different types of avoidance. And it occurred to me that these look like they fit into about five patterns. And if people have other patterns, I would love to hear about them and and am open to that. But I I even reached out to some colleagues and, and tried to have people kind of help me with these categories. And so the doer, like you said, is sort of overdoing it, staying busy, loving to have a to-do list. That is definitely the category I fall into, having a very hard time relaxing. The opposite of that is the hider. So this is the person who maybe avoids social situations, who is more likely to shut down, maybe be non-confrontational. Then we've got the pulsive. And so this is the person who engages in both compulsive and impulsive behaviors, or it could be one or the other. But so this might be things like skin picking, checking, spending, these kinds of things. There's the thinker. So this is the person who's like always up in their head, problem solving, worrying, thinking about what they're going to say before they say it, thinking through every potential consequence that could happen as a way to feel in control. And then the last person is the otherer. And this is the person who really relies on others when they're feeling uncomfortable. So instead of being the person who chooses the movie or the restaurant, it's asking others for their input or doing a lot of reassurance seeking. So sort of using others as a way to diminish anxiety. And so of course, all of these forms of avoidance are when I feel uncomfortable, insecure, scared, whatever the difficult emotion is, this is sort of my go-to strategy to try to feel better or to try to prevent some feared outcome from happening. And of course, we probably all engage in more than one of these, but it seems like there tends to be one that's kind of the more the go-to that people tend to use. So these are coping mechanisms, mm-hmm. you know, but at a cost. Exactly. And so what are some of the costs of in, in employing these coping strategies? Yeah. Well, I think there are many. I mean, if we take them one by one and just give a couple Mm -hmm. examples, you know, I think the doer, probably the biggest one is burnout, right? Like just kind of overdoing it until you burn out. I think for the thinker, it's exhausting and it doesn't always work. And, you know, you're, you're suffering the stress of all the possible things you're thinking about rather than just whatever's happening in the moment. For the hider, That one I think is probably more varied. It's, you know, because you're not engaging. So it could impact relationships. If you're being non-confrontational, it could impact your job. If you're avoiding getting us, you know, procrastinating, avoiding getting assignments done, avoiding talking with your boss, that one probably could impact any area of life would be my guess. You know, I think for the otherer, it could really be damaging to relationships. If you're constantly relying on other people, if you're constantly reassurance seeking, that can get tiring. Did I forget one? The pulsive? Again, I mean, that can have many, many negative outcomes too, especially if it's an engagement in sort of more high-risk behavior like substance use or you know, spending money that you don't have or things like that. Can you Talk a little bit about how this phenomenon develops in a particular individual. I, I, I know that from what I've read, the little that I've read about it, that there are individual characteristics as well as uh, cultural societal characteristics to this or factors that play into it. Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting question because, you know, we were talking before we hit record that when you do a Google search, you get tens of millions of hits. But when you look at real, like good, solid scientific research, there's almost none. And so even in looking at these 
kind of individual characteristics, a lot of this is just correlational research, which like doesn't really tell us much of anything. Like, oh, if people have this imposter experience, they also are more likely to be female or this or that. And it's it's just not particularly helpful. So I I don't think we can definitively say this is how this develops, but I certainly have ideas about how I think it develops. And I think it's a combination of factors. The first being evolution. You know, if you think about the way that early humans survived, we didn't have sharp claws or teeth or run at fast speeds. We had each other. And humans who hunted and gathered and traveled together had a survival advantage. And if you were kicked out of your tribe, you would literally die. And so I think the tendency to compare and to make sure like, am I, am I measuring up? Do I add value to this group? You know, if I don't, I'm going to get ousted and I'm going to die. And so I think we're really like evolutionarily programmed to constantly be checking ourselves against our fellow humans. I certainly think our learning experiences must play a pretty large role. And I talk in the book about (laughs) the bad news is, you know, if you had very critical parents, then you might be more prone to developing this. But also if you had really overly supportive parents who praised every single tiny little thing you did and like some part of you knows that maybe you don't really deserve praise just because you went down a slide, that even that could potentially promote this as well. But I think the more sort of current factors, it's really about the sociocultural context in which we live. And Chris, you mentioned at the beginning that this imposter quote unquote syndrome was originally identified as an imposter phenomenon by Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes back in 1978. And it was really pop culture. And so when Clance and Imes came up with this phenomenon, they talked about how they believed it really only affected high achieving women. We now know that's not true, but I don't think it's a coincidence that a phenomenon that was thought to only affect women suddenly became a syndrome. And if you think about the cultural factors that might promote this experience of feeling less than, worrying that we're going to get kind of kicked out. Culturally, if you have been told that you don't belong at all the tables, so if women don't belong at men's tables and straight people, gay people don't don't belong at straight tables and people of color don't belong at white tables, then it stands to reason that you would question your belongingness or your competence or you will you would worry that you're going to be outed or found out. So my guess is that it's really a combination of those three things. And it affects up to 70% of people. So like, this is not a syndrome, right? Like that's ridiculous. This is not a pathology. This is a really common, like nearly universal human experience that I think has been mislabeled. I just wanted to add that 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 was so powerful when I first read about it. I mean, I think for me, the term imposter syndrome was one of the most validating terms in my life. I remember when I came across it probably about, I don't know, 10 years ago, I suddenly thought, oh, that's what it is. (laughs) Like, it's like, wow, that's what we call it. The sense of never being enough, this sort of chronic sense of, you know, we, we did a previous podcast on self-doubt mm-hmm. and it, you know, always carrying that. It was, it was especially powerful, you know, in my training 
you know, this imposter sense and, and carrying it throughout life in all the corners and all the roles. Mm-hmm. And just listening to you and that 70%, again, was incredibly validating. It's, it's incredible that it's so unmovable in the sense that we never learn that we are okay, no matter how much data comes our way. It's kind of unchangeable about us as humans, is that we carry the sense of being an imposter or the sense of not being enough, and that nothing really shifts it, even across our lifespan. Do you have any thoughts on why? Why is it that we can't move this beast? Yeah. I think it does move for some people, but I I do think that's the exception, not the rule. And, you know, I had one one individual, an incredible individual. I mean, you know, this person's resume is like really something to behold. His name is Jamil and he's featured in the book. I interview him. And he actually did talk about how his did move over time because he found himself in arenas with mentors who consistently spread the message if you are here, you deserve to be here. You know, this is an elite program and we would not have let you be here if you didn't deserve to be here. And hearing that message over and over was helpful to him. Now, I think for a lot of other people, they'll still be saying, but that's only because you don't actually know who I really am and how incompetent I really am. And if you found out, then you would believe that I don't belong here. And I think part of it is really, this is a really simple answer to what's probably a more complex question, but I think so much of it boils down to what we care about. And that, you know, when I I tell a story, and this is completely true in the book about how, you know, how they say, it's just like riding a bike to mean that if you, you know, you, you get back to doing something you haven't done for a while, it's just like riding a bike. Like you could get on a bike after not riding it for 10 years and still be able to ride it. Well, I literally did not ride a bike for 10 years. And when I got back on my bike, it was not just like riding a bike and I immediately crashed. And the reason I tell the story is I say, you know, guess how long I spent worrying about being found out as a fraud because I couldn't ride a bike competently as an adult. Zero seconds because I don't care about my prowess at pedaling a two-wheeled vehicle. But what that event triggered in me was thinking about the fact that my kids, I think they were eight and 10 at the time, or seven and nine, and they didn't know how to ride a bike yet. And I immediately started thinking about what a terrible mother I am, because how could I let my kids get to this age? Everybody else in the neighborhood, their four and five-year-olds were riding bikes, maybe even younger. And my kids are going to be in therapy as adults talking about how their parents didn't teach them to ride a bike when they were young. So it triggered this whole cascade of thoughts about being inadequate, being a fraud as a mom, not being as good as all the other moms in the neighborhood, because I, I desperately care about being a good mom. And my kids now know how to ride a bike. So I don't think about that, but I still think about all the other ways. (laughs) I'm not a great mom or not as good of a mom as everybody else. So I think that it really has a lot to do with it, that these thoughts really only show up around the stuff that we care about. We want to be competent at work. We want other people to see that we're smart and competent because we care about our relationships with them. We don't want to be kicked out of kicked out of the group. And it, it, it doesn't take much to tweak one part of the anxiety web for, for everything to just sort of activate. Right. You know, to go from riding a bicycle to being a bad parent it's just yes. it's nanoseconds and it and yeah. it's true it's you know it, you know if if we didn't care if we didn't matter about it 
it wouldn't bother us. Exactly. So that's that's a message that I try to convey to, to people that I work with that, you know, the reason you're anxious about this is because you care about it. Just coming back, because I'm just noticing so many parallels with the self-doubt piece, that this feeling or of anxiety and, and being an imposter seems to show up when something really matters to us. Is there a message in that that is important for us to listen to? As in, in self-doubt, Jim Lucas was saying, you know, when we have self-doubt, it's because it matters, but it also means that because something matters, we do work hard and we are committed to doing a better job. Is it the same in the world of the imposter syndrome, do you think? I do think it is. I think, you know, I often say to people, if you're having these fears of being found out as a fraud, that is your signal that you are exactly where you are supposed to be. It is not your signal that you're not good enough and you should run away. It's your signal that this really matters to you. And so you are right where you are meant to be. I think where it can get dicey is when we listen to these thoughts and then get on this overachieving wheel. So there is a little bit of research in this area where people with higher rates of imposter thoughts tend to be more personable, interpersonally savvy. There was some research done, I think it was with medical students, and they were like more interpersonally effective if they had these higher rates of, of imposterism. And Adam Grant, who's you know a very famous organizational psychologist, talks about ways in which this might be helpful because it causes us to maybe think through, I shouldn't say causes us, but you know, it may be associated with thinking about creative solutions. We might reach out to other people to get more information. It might motivate us to work harder. You know, he identifies a couple ways in which this could be helpful. My answer, you know, as an ACT therapist, as I know you are too, is it really depends. And what are the, the behaviors associated with imposterism? What is this in the service of? You know, if you're working harder but it's because you're on that hamster wheel of achievement trying to outrun imposterism, then it's really in the service of avoidance, not in the service of living your life in a way that you really want to live it. If you are people pleasing because you're so afraid that other people are going to judge you and find out you're a fraud, that might look like being more interpersonally effective. But the way I just described it is a form of avoidance that has costs. And so I think what people need to do is really get clear on when these thoughts come up for me, what am I doing when they show up? And if those choices are in the service of values and growing my career, or they can certainly show up in domains outside of career, you know, parenting anywhere really. But am I responding in a way that's consistent with my values and what I want my life to look like and what I want to stand for? Or am I really responding in a way that's coming from a place of wanting to decrease my discomfort? And that that should really be the guide or, or maybe the answer to, is this helpful versus does this have a cost and what's sort of the right way to move forward? So the same behavior could have different functions depending on the context or one's motivation. So there's, what I'm hearing is there's sort of a sweet spot where you're acting and choosing in, in a way that, that supports the life that you want, but it's not shading into you know, desperation and self-protection and avoidance. So it's, it's finding that sweet spot. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's well said. And it reminds me of that sort of the fabulous quote of Steve Hayes that keeps getting repeated around how do we have to hold these things lightly, those words. 
whatever the words are, that we need to hold those lightly. Yeah, definitely. And what that also reminds me of is how often, you know, imposter thoughts may come up because we're focusing on an outcome. And one of the ways that we can kind of move back from that is really to be more focused on process, choices, actions, steps, the things that we can actually control um, rather than being focused on outcome where there's often that fear that if this doesn't go well, I'll be outed and found out as as a fraud. Right. You know, one example I think about for myself is when I started my started working. I, so I am also a, a co-host of a podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock, as you mentioned in the beginning. And when I first started there, you know, there were all these amazing people that I really wanted to talk to, and my imposter thoughts got very loud. Who am I to think that I can talk to this person or ask this person? And if I thought about the rejection. And that they would see right through me and that I'm such a fraud. I'm not a podcast co-host, right? That's like, I'm, I'm a fraud. I'm an imposter. I'm posing. But if I thought about the person I want to be as someone who's bold and courageous and willing to persevere and take risks irrespective of how it goes, that really helped me to take those risks. And of course, some people say no. And then I learn by experience. I get out of my head and learn by experience that that's not actually a big deal and I can really handle that. But miraculously, most people say yes, right? So it's like that, like what a gift, you know, that when you, when you're willing to take those steps, those actions, irrespective of outcome, even when you feel really scared and anxious, like, you know, what, what a vital kind of experience you can have. And of course, you know, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Right. And uh, no, as you were talking about that, I was saying, oh, I'm, I'm having that stuff right now, but as a podcast host who has, you know, no idea what he's doing, and very grateful that kind folks like you take pity on us and and come onto our <laughs> our program. But isn't that so funny? Because my reaction to that is to immediately think, "What?" But you're Chris McCurry. I mean, I've had your book listed on my private practice website. We have some resources like here are good books for parents with kids with anxiety. Da, da, da. You know, I'm like, but you're Chris McCurry. So we all have the same experience where I'm like, but you're famous and I'm nobody. And now you're saying you're having like this really similar experience. And I can tell you that and it won't make you feel better. And you can tell me that and it won't make me feel better. And it's, this is all just this common humanity, you know, this really common shared experience that we have. And I think the more that we talk about it and share about it, the more humanizing it is. Like you were saying, Emma, you felt so validated when you started to learn about this. And, you know, I think that's a big part of what can break it down and help us to be brave and to not listen to those thoughts, to really acknowledge like, oh, right, this is like a normal part of the human experience. And I get to choose how I'm going to respond, even when they get really loud. Well, it and it goes back to what Emma was saying before about how this this you know, phenomenon is impervious to data. And there's always the yes, but, you know, sure, I've written some books, but I've never done a podcast. So, mm-hmm. you know, this, this is where my, my incompetence is going to be revealed. And so we, we're not going to get rid of this stuff necessarily. And, you know, your, your example that you described previously, notwithstanding, I think most of us, we're just going to have to make peace with this guest at the party. It's one of Steve Hayes's favorite metaphors of you know having a party and some person arrives at the party that you were hoping wouldn't show up, and you can spend the whole party like 
thinking about Joe the bum being at the party, or you can notice that he's there, but turn your attention toward, you know, enjoying yourself. It's like Emma knows I always have to throw a quote in here somewhere. You You know, William James said, the father of American psychology said, my experience is what I, what I agree to attend to. Mm. And, you know, so, sometimes I'm, I'm, I feel compelled to attend to these thoughts that I'm having about being a fraud, but that's going to be my experience if, if I allow myself to dwell there. So trying to shift my attention mm-hmm. towards something else can help me get unstuck from that and move on. Absolutely. Well, and let's also, maybe this is going back to your question, Emma, about whether there's any kind of benefits to this, what that I, I just had a thought that, you know, the 30%, I don't know if it's a 30%, but among the 30% of people who don't experience this imposter phenomenon are people that fall into that cognitive bias of the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? It's sort of this, like, I'm too incompetent to know that I'm not incompetent. So it's, there's another quote I could throw at you, Chris. I think it's Charles Darwin says, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. Oh yes, you had that. Right? In your, you had that in your book. Yeah, you know. So I think that's like that's problematic too, right? When you have more confidence about your knowledge than you really should, and that this is a way in which maybe having a little bit of that self doubt, or at least humility, you know, is not a bad thing. Right. Well, again, you know, Mark Twain. It's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> <laughs> It's brilliant. Oh, I'm going to have to write that one down. So good. That's so good. I, I remember hearing somewhere, I can't remember where, and I mentioned this to Chris earlier, that it was 70% of people feel like they're an imposter and the other 30% who don't should. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that always struck me because, yeah, that's true. There's something really important when we question ourselves, yes. when we do doubt ourselves, and that we should hold that lightly albeit that it's not the thing that dominates, but that it should really be there. And I was just, as you were speaking, I was remembering, and I'll misquote Brene Brown, but she talks about the power of vulnerability. Mm. And it struck me as, you know, we were talking that here we are feeling like we're an imposter because we don't quite meet what we think are the expectations that others have of us. And yet the most connecting thing we can do is to be vulnerable. That is the thing that mostly helps us to feel liked and accepted. Like if I think of you, Jill, you know, one of the things I love the most about you and the podcast is how authentic you are. Mm-hmm. And you. when you share so authentically, I, I really connect to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And it makes me want to listen to you more. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And I will share that I have vulnerability hangovers from that all the time. You know, so it's it is not easy to to be vulnerable, and it creates a lot of fear and self doubt. People will judge me, and we don't like to be judged because we don't want to be rejected. And what's there's a study that shows that the the parts of the brain that light up when you're rejected are the same parts of the brain that that are impacted by physical pain, and I think that's related to the evolutionary roots that we talked about earlier. 
but but I think it's so true. We don't connect with each other over perfection. It's really the imperfection. And I, I share a story in the book about a person I became friends with, and it was the first time I was coming to her house. And it and she hadn't cleaned up. You know, She had two kids and a full-time job. And I was like, oh my God, I've never loved you more. And I have never felt closer to you. And all I could think about was the programming from my mom about how everything has to be just so before you let a human into your home. And how, you know, absolutely backwards that is. Like, we just don't have that right. It comes from that place of self-preservation, but we just don't have it right. And I do think that's another reason why sharing our experiences with this imposter phenomenon are really important because it's connecting and it can help us to go. You know, I, I led this panel. The the way that I got into my interest around imposter quote unquote syndrome was I, I led a panel at an ACBS conference. So that's an association I think we all belong to, Contextual and Behavioral Sciences. And I was the, the moderator. You know, I just kind of put together a slide with a little bit of info. And then there were four very successful women who all shared their own experiences with imposter syndrome. And it was one of the most powerful professional experiences I've ever had because we had so many people reach out to us. And the predominant reaction was, wait a minute, you feel this way, but you're so successful. How could you possibly feel this way? And what that translated to is, huh, if you can feel this way and still move forward and like have this kick butt career, then maybe I can too. And oh, I just got goosebumps retelling that story because that was really my hope is that, you know, other people's stories would inspire those that are hanging back to take those steps forward. And that's what I hope the book will do, too. So you mentioned in the book breaking breaking this cycle of being stuck in these these particular thoughts and feelings and the resulting behaviors. You can break it through psychological flexibility, which is near and dear to our hearts, but Perhaps our listeners need a bit of a definition of that and some idea of how that would actually apply. Yeah. So, you know, psychological flexibility really is just about being right here in this one present moment, because it's the only one we've got, aware of and open to all of our thoughts, feelings, urges, physical sensations, like all that stuff that's going on inside of our skin and making conscious, deliberate choices to do what matters, to do what our values guide us to do rather than doing things to feel better, you know, avoid a negative outcome. And, you know, that's where the, when I said earlier, you know, is this helpful or hurtful? Well, it depends. It depends what it's in the service of. And psychological flexibility is really what I was referring to there is if you're interacting with these thoughts and feelings in a psychologically flexible way, then, you know, that that's like, that's where it's at. That's what really matters is living the life that you most want to live kind of irrespective of what you're, what you're thinking and feeling. I attended the uh, ACBS conference in San Francisco last summer and psychologist from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, Siri Ming spoke. Mm -hmm. And she defined psychological flexibility as the ability to navigate challenging situations effectively, even in the presence of difficult thoughts and feelings, which I thought was a very elegant definition of psychological it flexibility. Is. And she's amazing. And that talk was amazing. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I was there too. That was yeah. really good stuff. I think psychological flexibility was, was what I was referring to earlier about that sweet spot where you're sort of 
you're sort of poised at this space where you're not moving in this direction or in that direction, but you you can choose the direction you're going going to go in, but you're not compelled to do it, or, or it's 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 more of you know you, you get to choose which way you're yeah. going to go. Yeah, I think that's the most important word to all of this. It's, you know, we're responding instead of reacting. And what does that mean? We're choosing. We're choosing how we're going to respond rather than just being on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how, sure. how do we get how do we get there? You know, I have no idea. I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, that is a big question. And it, I, it's learning how to respond to thoughts and feelings in ways that are probably different than what we have learned in the past. And so when there are emotions or physiological feelings that are uncomfortable, instead of doing all the things we automatically do to make those go away, we learn how to do the opposite, to open up, to make space. We can notice them. We can make space for them. I like to do that with clients really just through breathing. You know, when you inhale, your body literally expands. And so you can expand to make space for those experiences. But my favorite way to do this is through a series of ridiculous, but very fun and playful exercises. And, and the basically what I tell people is if you told me that it was really important to you to run a marathon. And you gave me all the reasons that the values were tied to why you have this big goal. I would not say, great, you should go run Boston next weekend if you had never even walked around the block in your neighborhood, right? You would like really need to train and you would need to train a lot. And so I like to do a lot of training around willingness and acceptance, this idea of like making space for discomfort getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And so one of my favorite ways, I, I know we're not on video, but you guys can see it. It's right here in my desk drawer. Are you familiar with Bean Boozled Jelly Beans? So be, bean, get comfortable being, oh, you're muted, Chris, but Chris is showing me a button that says, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I love that and I need it. I want it plastered everywhere. I got that from Lisa Coyne. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to have to yell at her for not giving me one of those. I'm going to I'm gonna request one. I have to I have to get a new car. My lease is up soon and I'm already seeing that this is what I want on the back of my car. Spread the message far and wide. So I like to practice getting comfortable being uncomfortable just by using the senses. And of course, the internet is beautiful for that because you can look at all sorts of gross things on, you know, Google images or wherever. You can listen to all sorts of things. You've got YouTube at your fingertips. But the bean boozled jelly beans are jelly beans that, you know, the pink one might be strawberry banana smoothie or it might be vomit flavored. But at the end of the day, they're all just jelly beans. And I... I'm living in Massachusetts now and I'm licensed in California. So all of my therapy is telehealth and we just prepare and I ask clients to purchase these. They're like three bucks on Amazon. They're not prohibitively expensive. And then we play together on telehealth and we do all of this as a mindful willingness experience. And that as you get comfortable being uncomfortable, then we sort of graduate to emotions, you know, watching the last five minutes of the movie Marley and Me, which is just gut-wrenching if you've ever seen that movie, and then kind of pulling all of that into their lives and whatever the things are that they're actually struggling with in terms of their thoughts and feelings. And believe it or not, clients are willing to do, to do all of these crazy things with me, and we have a lot of fun. There, there was one session, my husband also works from home and we're kind of like on opposite sides of the hall, and he's like, 
what were you doing in there? I was like, oh, I was in a therapy session. He's like, why were you screaming? And I was like, oh, we were watching jump scare movie clips and I am terrified of scary movies. And so, you know, that like even practicing being willing and open to the dread and the apprehension and the knowing it's coming, you know, I couldn't help that sort of automatic fear startle response when the jump actually happened. So my husband was very confused when he heard screaming from my... (laughs) My therapy session. So they're they're very fun, these practices. It's, I, I believe one of those jelly beans t- tastes like earwax. Yes. Um, oh, gosh. How, Indeed. how they determine that, I don't know. But Earwax, yeah. Yeah. That's but, my biggest question, too. Who are the people who work for the company yeah, yeah. that develop and taste the flavors? <laughs> no idea. Dirty yeah. dishwater is one. Dog oh, food. Oh, my goodness. Uh, oh, yeah. <gasps> Mm-hmm. So, so basically, you're talking about exposure exercises, mm-hmm. and uh, starting, it's emotion exposure, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. starting starting off small and and mm-hmm. and protective and and fun, and then learning that we can. I won't say the word tolerate necessarily because that implies kind of gritting your teeth through a situation, but an openness to the experience. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's like a skill, really. I believe it is. Absolutely a skill. I think that that's exactly right. And, you know, we're sort of programmed. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you want to take your hand away. The pain is an indicator that you're going to be harmed. But of course, we, you know, we apply that to our, to our inner world in a, in a world that shrinks our existence and doesn't really work so well. So it's, it's, it's building a skill. It's sort of almost in some ways like untraining some of our more natural instincts, and then building skills for how to do things in a different way. Yeah, I think that's right. So it's unlearning in some ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, we know there's like no delete button and we can't really right. unlearn, but but right. yes, I mean, I think, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, we can override old programming with new programming. Exactly, yeah. And I do this all the time, by the way. Like, I like to have my money all facing the same way in denominational order. So 100% of the time, if I'm getting, you know, cash change at a store, I put it in all wonky, you know, cattywampus. And when I'm taking a shower, normally I would shave my legs in a very certain order, start at the front, go around in order. And so instead I do a stripe in the back and a stripe in the front. And it's really like any time that I have an opportunity to practice being uncomfortable, I do it. You know, it's just like any other muscle, I think we really need to practice consistently. You know, it's not, you don't like lift weights to get strong and then just never lift another weight again. It's a practice that you have to consistently utilize throughout the course of your life if you want to keep your muscles strong. And I think about psychological flexibility and getting comfortable being uncomfortable in exactly the same way. Well, I I think too, what you're describing is a way of training up noticing where if you're doing something by you know rote routine, you're semi-conscious about it, and that's fine for a lot of situations, necessary. But if if we're talking about mindfulness as being a part of this, and you know, the awareness, the noticing, then doing little things like you know I've encouraged people to use their non-dominant hand, you know, mm-hmm. when they brush their teeth or mm-hmm. you know put the keys in in the lock, you know, when they're coming home, and it's just a, a little way of just kind of noticing, oh, this is what's going on in the present moment as opposed to, okay, what's what do I need to do once I get inside the house? Um, 100%. And you can't choose a new response if you're not noticing 
right. the automatic stuff that is that's happening. Exactly. You know, the, the automatic reactions that are happening. Right. Right. So in the few minutes that we have left, what should we leave our listeners? Well, you know, I, I was asked to do a talk for some teenagers that, that was about mental health. And they really wanted them to walk out of there with like something they could use in their lives. But I only had 20 minutes and I was like, oh God, no pressure or anything, you know, like change their lives in the world of mental health, but you've only got 20 minutes. And honestly, I I sat there and I thought, I'm like, well, if I could teach kids and teens one thing in 20 minutes, what would it be? And you know what my answer was? It was getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's what the 20 minutes was about. And so even though we've just spent quite a bit of time already talking about this, I think this is the thing to leave listeners with is to start looking for opportunities to use your non-dominant hand, to shave your legs in a funny feeling way, you know, to watch scary movies if you typically avoid scary movies. Get on that roller coaster if you normally don't like roller coasters and to do that in a way that's noticing and open and willing as a way to practice strengthening mm-hmm those psychological flexibility muscles. Because if, you know, if we think about all the things we do or don't do in the name of needing to be comfortable versus what would be different in our lives if we were willing to feel that discomfort, it's like everything. It's just sort of the answer to all the things, you know? So I think that's really the the first step is to start practicing those things. And when it comes to the imposter phenomenon, it's uncomfortable. The fear of being found out as a fraud is terribly uncomfortable. And so if you can learn to make space for that fear and self-doubt, to notice those thoughts and choose how to respond to them in a way that is not about comfort, but a willingness to be uncomfortable and to take risks and be bold and brave, if those are your values, if they're not, you know, then maybe not you know, then there, there's a lot of doors that can, that can open. Right. And I, I, I hear the lawyers saying reasonable risks. Right. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> well, per, or, or maybe even perceived risks yeah. because isn't that often what it is? It's, I'm afraid this is risky, but the reality is like, it's really only mildly risky or, or maybe sometimes not actually all that risky at all. Right. You know, we can tolerate a lot of challenging things but we don't necessarily believe that right. we can. And it's invigorating when, Absolutely. when we do. There's no more vitality that comes with that feeling of being brave. Yeah. Sweet. Yes. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, you can email us at lifesdirtylittlesecretspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets Podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See See you you then. then.